Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. Checking in about food allergies and introducing allergenic foods. And have you done peanut with your baby yet? Well, intact nuts and thick globs of nut butters like peanut butter are choking hazards for babies, but we want to get that peanut protein into your baby early and often in order to help lower the risk of peanut allergy down the road. My absolute favorite way to introduce peanuts for babies is using the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs. So When you hear puffs, like you're probably like, oh, those starchy little puff things. Like, no, no, no. Not the little ones that earlier eaters can't pick up. Those kind of crappy puffs from the store that have added sugar and refined grains and lots of salt. Uh uh. The Puffworks baby peanut puffs have no added sugar. They have just a smidge of sodium for preservatives, and they are the perfect size for baby led weaning. They're about the size of your adult pinky finger. So, you can, baby can pick them up, self-feed them, but they're so soft that they dissolve in your baby's mouth so you can introduce these peanut puffs even before your baby has teeth. Puffworks also makes a baby almond puff for the safe introduction of a separate allergenic food category. That's tree nuts. And now, finally, Puffworks put out a combo case. So it's half baby peanut and half baby almond. So if you want to grab one case, then you can knock out two new allergenic foods. We do these on different days, though. These are just the no-stress, low-mess way to get peanut and tree nut out of the way. So you can get 15% off everything at puffworks.com when you use the affiliate discount code BLWPOD. That's a new code. It's BLWPOD. Use that sucker at checkout at puffworks.com and get peanut and tree nut safely out of the way. Another good colleague of mine published data showing that with increased diet diversity, so increased food variety in the first year of life, we see reduced prevalence of food allergies up to six years of age. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. Hey guys, welcome back. We have a pretty big task ahead of us today. We are going to be setting the record straight on one of the biggest fallacies of infant feeding. And that is this idea that you need to wait three to five days between the introduction of every new food that your baby tries. Now, many parents are still hearing this advice from pediatricians. And in this episode, you're gonna hear why that's outdated advice. And they'll hear, okay, I gotta wait three to five days. And then they'll come and they'll follow my five-step feeding framework for baby led weaning and be like, but Katie, you're advocating for the introduction of five new foods per week. How does that work if I'm supposed to wait three to five days between new foods? What gives? Well, here's the deal. If you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics guidance, they do say that, quote, to identify adverse reactions, new foods should be introduced singly over several days. So over the years, that's evolved into pediatricians advising parents, okay, wait three to five days between foods. But there is this emerging body of research that supports 
the benefits of what we call diet diversity. And my guest today, Karina Ventner, is going to talk a lot about diet diversity. Basically, babies who are exposed to a greater variety of foods and flavors and tastes and textures early and often, those are the babies who tend to have what we call more food acceptance. They tend to be more independent eaters and less likely to be picky eaters. So if we want to get that diet diversity, it means we've got to expose babies to more foods and more eating opportunities, not needlessly withholding new foods from babies for days on end for no reason. That's definitely not supported by anything in the literature. And that's what Karina is going to focus on today. So we do with potentially allergenic foods advise building in a small pad of a couple of days to observe for any potential reaction. But the likelihood, you guys, if your baby's having a severe allergic reaction to food is very small. So in the five-step feeding framework that I teach, we do do an allergenic food every Friday. We feed that food twice to a baby on Friday, twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday, no other new foods over the weekend, ample time to observe for a reaction. But all those other low-risk foods that you're feeding your baby throughout the week, meaning the non-allergenic foods, just so you know, there is no harm in introducing these foods one at a time, day after day. So my guest today, as I mentioned, is Karina Ventner. She's gonna be talking more about this concept and why you do not need to wait three to five days between introducing new foods. Karina Ventner is a PhD dietitian. She's an associate professor of pediatrics and allergy and immunology at the Children's Hospital Colorado and the University of Colorado Denver School of Medicine. Karina has spent more than 20 years in research and clinical practice focusing on the prevention, diagnosis, and management of food allergies and other allergic diseases. Karina speaks extensively and around the world about allergy prevention. She's published numerous research studies on the topic, and she's going to talk about some of them with us today. She is an appointee to like pretty much every international expert panel if it has to do with kids and allergies, including, and she's going to talk about today, the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, their peanut allergy prevention guidelines. So she was an appointee on the NIAID guideline. She's also a medical advisor for FAIR, Food Allergy Research Education Group. Many of you know them from foodallergy.org. I am so excited that she could join us on this podcast. I actually recently heard Karina speaking on a FAIR webinar about the emerging research in food allergy prevention. And I just love that she had the courage to stand up and say, whoa, wait a minute. Waiting three to five days between foods is not only unnecessary, There's no research to support these recommendations. This is not going to allow babies to achieve the diet diversity that all the other research she's working on shows that our babies really need early on in feeding. She does talk a lot about research and a lot of different publications. I got all the links from her. So for you nerds out there, I'm linking them all up in the show notes for this episode at blwpodcast.com forward slash 84. Early on when she's talking about research, she mentions RCTs. RCTs refers to randomized control trials. And so she's talking in particular about the LEAP study, learning early about peanut trial. So when she says RCT, again, that's randomized control trial. And we're talking about, you know, whether or not it would even be feasible to put together an RCT to test if waiting three to five days or not waiting three to five days between foods is doable. We know anecdotally because Tens of thousands of you guys out there are doing 100 foods with your babies before they turn one. So we can do it. But of course, we need to have that peer review published research with well-designed studies in order to make it part of the guidance that then pediatricians will hopefully be giving to parents. So with no further ado, I don't know if you guys can tell, but I am like so excited that Karina is coming on the podcast. Here is Karina Ventner talking about why you do not need to wait three to five days between new foods. All right. Hi, Karina. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I cannot tell you how excited I am. I have been a huge fan of your work 
for a while now. And I had the biggest smile on my face. I heard you on the recent FAIR webinar saying that we don't need to be telling parents to wait three to five days between introducing new foods. And everyone on my team, we were watching simultaneously and we were all like shaking our heads and yes, yes, finally someone has the courage to say this. So I'm wondering if we could talk just a little bit about the infamous and confusing guidance that parents hear to this day all the time. It's usually from their pediatrician. They think they need to wait three to five days between trying new foods with their babies. Where did this come from? Is it true? What are your thoughts on that statement? So um, the interesting thing is I work very closely with Dr. Richie Gupta, who recently published a paper on this, indicating that up to about 30% of pediatricians still advise families to follow this advice, um, i.e. waiting three to five days between trying new foods. And so when we went back and tried to find where this originates from, we cannot actually find the original data, but it is clearly the advice that is currently displayed and available on the American Academy of Pediatric website and also on the Center for Disease Control website. So the AAP and the CDC um, still advise parents to wait three to five days between introducing new foods. And um, we are hoping that they will be reviewing this advice soon. Okay. What would be like the reality of that actually happening? Like I know how some of these bodies work. I think, for example, like 20 years ago when I was studying to be a dietitian, we were taught, you know, wait until age one to introduce egg white. And now when we look at the data, we know that the earlier introduction of the allergenic foods helps prevent food allergy. And I think back like, well, why were we learning that and being taught that? There was no evidence to support that. It just like seemed like a good idea. And I kind of get the same vibe with the three to five day recommendation. Like it's out there, but it's not cited. It's not referenced. It's not based on any evidence. And yet it's become like the de facto recommendation that parents are still hearing. Like, how can we change this if there is no research to support that? Yes. You know, I wonder if it will go the same way as the early allergen um, advice. So when I started my PhD in 2001, the advice in the United Kingdom at the time was not to give peanuts in high-risk infants up to about three years of age, although the exact phrase said parents from high-risk families may wish not to introduce peanuts up to three years of age. And then it was actually the data from my PhD showing that, hang on, you know, perhaps that's not the right advice. It was an observational study at the time. So they didn't categorically change the guidance from saying, don't wait to give, but they did actually change the guidance to say, we're not really sure if we should wait with introducing peanut and other allergens. And it actually took a very well-conducted RCT and the LEAP trial introducing peanuts and early life in the first year of life um, in high-risk infants to actively change the guidance to say, now we, we do want to introduce peanuts actively in the first year of life. And so I'm not sure if this three to five days waiting advice would go the same way where hopefully we can have some data and perhaps we will talk about the diversity data later on Perhaps that's good enough observational data to say, well, perhaps, you know, we could just say we're not sure if we should wait three to five days. And then I wonder if it will take an RCT, which will be difficult to conduct, but to get us to actively change the guidance to say we can do one new food every day. I'm happy to discuss observational data about at least food preferences when we don't wait three to five days, um, if you would be interested in that. Yeah, and I think my audience they're maybe familiar with the peanut guidelines and the LEAP study that she's mentioning, you guys, is the learning early about peanut allergy. And it's this 
landmark study that really just changed the way we look at the introduction of allergenic foods. But I'm just curious, Karina, is there anything underway? I mean, are you and your team, would you ever consider doing a randomized control trial about the waiting three to five days? Because as far as I know, having done this anecdotally with tens of thousands of families, there's never any adverse reactions that occur from introducing low risk foods one per day. Yes, we build in that observation pad for the allergenic foods, but as far as introducing the low risk foods one per day, do you recommend that as well? Because wouldn't you see the majority of the indicators of an allergic reaction in the minutes and the hours following the ingestions of the food, not days and weeks later? I'm not aware of anybody doing um, an RCT really focusing on the three to five days introduction. I would love to do a study like that, but we still have more work to do in the food allergy world. And so I am involved in a trial that will start um, early next year, led by Dr. Rishi Gupta from um, Chicago, where we will actively be introducing major allergens in the first year of life compared to control group. I'm working with two very wonderful dietitians on this study as well. And we will be monitoring how long the parents wait between introduction of foods in the active trial, where we will be advising parents to just do one new food a day um, versus the control group, which will hopefully still wait three to five days so that we do have two nice competitive groups. And hopefully that will give us enough information to go back to the CDC and the um, AAP and also the National Institutes of Health and say, well, perhaps this is good enough data to now withdraw that guidance. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. So can you talk a little bit about the idea of diet diversity. I know you speak a lot about that, and it's one of the endpoints that we're looking for. What does the current research say for babies who get diet diversity, let's say a wide variety of foods? My audience is familiar. A lot of them try to feed their baby a hundred different foods by the time they turn one. But if we compare that to babies who are traditionally spoon-fed, sometimes they only have 10 or 15 foods by the time they turn one. What's the difference and why should we be seeking to get our baby's diet diversity? Okay. I've actually made myself a few notes on this because I have so much to say, but I'm trying to make sense. And so first I want to break it up to just say that about 10 years ago, I met this wonderful PhD student in Switzerland. And uh, she showed in her data that if we actually increase food intake, we mix food, we don't wait for days between foods, which is really the way that the French were weaning their babies compared to the German babies that had one new food, one at a time, three to five days apart, that food acceptance 
uh, was so much better in the babies that didn't wait and that had new foods introduced either as single or mixtures of food. And that really sparked my interest in this whole aspect of um, diet diversity from basically the point of view of getting babies to eat and love food, but as well as wondering whether that would have an effect on allergy outcomes. And so then in 2014, um, another good colleague of mine, um, also from Switzerland, published data showing that with increased diet diversity, so increased food variety in the first year of life, we see reduced prevalence of food allergies up to six years of age. And so um, ever since I've read um, Dr. Caroline Rude's paper, I really wanted to do my own study. And so I was really excited um, at the beginning of this year when finally my data from England on the Isle of Wight was published, showing that increased diet diversity, whether we measure it as just complete diet diversity, so whichever food they've eaten, we count, whether we focus on increased fruit and vegetable diversity, or whether we focus on increased food allergen diversity, we always saw reduced food allergy outcomes over the first 10 years of life. And what was actually strikingly was that we found with every additional food we gave or the baby ate in the first 12 months, we saw a 10% reduction in food allergy outcomes over the first 10 years of life. And with every additional food allergen given in the first year of life, we saw a 30% decrease odds of developing food allergies over the first year of life. Again, I want to say this is observational data, not as good quality data as an RCT. I won't stare myself blind against the 10% and the 30%, but I think we're confident enough looking at my data as well as Caroline Ruday's data to say, let the babies eat. You know, we want to get foods in, we want to get a variety of foods in, and we want to get the food allergens in alongside an underlying healthy, varied diet. And I love speaking with you because you make that connection there that babies don't learn to eat these different groups of foods in a vacuum. It's not like no. you just do the allergenic foods and then you're just doing different textures and then you're just doing high iron foods. If we're doing a variety of different foods, one new food a day, they're going to be getting the different nutrients. They're going to be trying the different textures and you're going to be covering your base with the allergenic foods. And I hear what you're saying, but you're a PhD RD whose life's work is committed to this. My concern are the pediatricians because I'm also a nutrition professor at UC San Francisco, and I teach in our graduate nursing and nurse practitioner programs. And I always remind students that, you know, in the United States, 90% of physicians have never taken a dedicated nutrition class. So our doctors and pediatricians, as well-intentioned as they are, they're oftentimes not aware of the most current nutrition research and feeding guidelines. So I was curious, could you speak a little bit about maybe the extent of this problem with the pediatricians? Why are they not following current guidelines? about the introduction of solid foods and in particular allergenic foods? Because most moms will tell you, check out my doctor's not talking about introducing peanut, wheat, egg, soy, et cetera. You know, educating healthcare professionals, definitely MDs, but particularly also dietitians, is one of my other big interests. And perhaps later on, we can talk about the work I'm doing in educating dietitians in food allergy. But focusing now here on the general pediatricians, you know, the interesting thing is, over the years where I've done research in the United Kingdom, some surveys we've done here in the States, and now again, the data published by Dr. Gupta, always show one thing, the doctors want training. They always report a need for further training. So it's not that they don't implement guidance because they are opposed to the guidance, 
It's the fact that they always feel they don't know enough. And once again, interesting, the group from Chicago published a study where they showed that about 90% of pediatricians in the U.S. are aware of the NIAID guidelines about early introduction of peanut, but only 30% were implementing it. And the reasons they gave was because the parents were concerned about allergic reactions and perhaps they didn't feel adequate to really reassure the parents that young infants don't tend to get anaphylaxis in the vast majority of cases. So really, you know, apart from a handful of cases, it's really safe to introduce the allergens at home. And they were uncertain about the guidelines. I was on the NIAID guidelines myself. I was very proud to be invited to serve on the NIAID guidelines. But looking back and in hindsight, Perhaps these guidelines are a slightly bit too complex for somebody outside of the allergy field to really read and understand with the first go. So perhaps we should, alongside publishing the guidelines, also really invest in educating general pediatricians. And then the third one was that because of the way we've written the NIAID guidelines, many of the doctors think that they can't introduce allergens at home and they should bring the kids in for an in-office supervised feed which clearly your general pediatrician could not manage on top of everything else they have to focus on. So I think it is really, you know, to summarize, they're aware of it. They feel uncertain about implementing it. But the three top things stopping them from implementing it is parental concerns, not really understanding the guidelines and thinking it's going to increase their workload more than um, they can actually deal or cope with. You mentioned your role in the NIAID guidelines. Could you maybe just expand for our audience, like what exactly that means and what the outcomes were and what your role in it was? Okay. So the NIAID guidelines is the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Obviously, you've heard a lot about NIAID during the uh, corona times. And uh, also Dr. Fawcy is leading the, the NIAID group. But with NIAID, there's also the focus on allergy um, other than just infectious diseases. And so after the publication of the LEAP study, which is learning early about peanut trial, which was partly funded by the NIAID or the National Institutes of Health, they got a group of experts together. So it was myself and another dietitian with an interest in health messages and general infant nutrition opposed to allergy nutrition. And then we had dermatologists, pediatricians, allergists on the panel as well, and, and some scientists. So we looked at the LEAP data. We systematically reviewed all the evidence available at the time about early introduction. And then, you know, I wrote the NIAID guidelines about early introduction of peanut. And in short, the guidelines are saying there's the high-risk group that really should be eating peanuts twice a week, about two grams of peanut protein. If you search the NIAID guidelines, and I'm happy to also to provide the link that you can um, put on your website, you will see the practical um, advice that I've written for parents, literally with pictures on what two teaspoons or two grams of peanut protein looks like. Wait, is that you that like draw the picture of the puffs with the soaking it, the breast milk and all that? Those are your images? I wouldn't say it's my images. I'm behind the images. But oh my it's gosh, it's the only... NIAID who... This is fabulous. It's the only useful part of the entire guidelines for parents is that addendum on how you actually use all these pages of data. I can't believe you wrote it. Of course, the dietitian wrote it. Makes perfect sense. I will get that and I will link it up for you guys on the show notes for this episode at blwpodcast.com forward slash 84. And that's a fabulous resource because she also explains the difference 
between infants who are at high risk for peanut allergy versus the lower risk categories. And that's an important differentiation because for most babies, we don't start solid foods until they're six months of age, plus showing the other signs of readiness to feed. But there is a very small subset of the population who may need to do peanuts prior to six months. And Karina shows you how to do that safely in that document. So again, linking that up at blwpodcast.com forward slash 84. Yes. And I can actually tell you a funny story about that because you will see that the guidance say you can give 21 of these peanut puffs. I can tell you a whole kitchen full of these bamba puffs um, and count it every single bag to see how many puffs there are in every bag so that we could actually get on this average of 21 puffs. It was actually quite fun to be involved and I really enjoyed it. And I know when you give your presentations, especially for the general public, what I like about your messaging is that you don't get bogged down in the numbers. Like too often dietitians are like, eat two grams three times a week over two ounces. And like that freaks parents out because babies and people eat foods and pieces of food, not grams and ounces. And so I think the guidance for parents about introducing allergenic foods early and often, that term early and often, they get frustrated by it. But I understand that it's purposely ambiguous. And so Outside of peanut with the other seven or eight allergenic foods, when parents ask you like exactly how much of which gram, how many times a week, how do you kind of back them off of the numbers and really reinforce the early and often guidance without giving like specific recommendations? Because there is no data behind that. There isn't. But um, I do have to say that um, if you go onto PubMed and you search Venter, which is my last name, and Grutsch, Mary and Grutsch from Mount Sinai, we've recently published a very practical paper with Dr. Um, Brian um, Schreer and Doug Mack from Canada. Brian Schreer is from Ohio on practical dosages for all the other allergens, you know, in the absence of really good data. And so what we did was we sort of like looked at the RCTs previously conducted, focusing on other allergens versus the new US dietary guidelines, even though they're still in draft form. We looked at those dosages. And so we created a table to give you some sort of an idea of how much of the other allergens to give. And so what I clinically do in practice with my patients, I actually just did that yesterday. I love, I love seeing parents and do early allergen introduction. I say to them, you know, this NIAID guideline, I was one of the main authors. And this table from this paper, I was one of the main authors. So you can go home and you can put it on your fridge. Here is what practically you have to do. Do you guys eat peanut at home? Do you eat egg at home? Do you eat fish at home? How often do you eat these foods? And if it is an allergen that the family eats, I normally say, so forget all about these very complex dosaging. If you eat peanut butter sandwiches twice a week, give your baby peanut butter when you do that. Remember, it's a choking risk. So always try and mix it with a little bit of liquid or baby puree, but relax about it. Feed the baby peanut when you do. Yes, you have pancakes on a Saturday and at least once a week, you guys will eat muffins. Okay, perhaps we don't want to give sugary cakes and muffins to a four-month-old, but let that be a prompt. If you're eating a muffin, make sure you give your baby some hard-boiled, you know, well, we say liquidized or pureed egg at the same time. I do spend a bit more time giving practical advice about foods that families do not eat. Like, for example, many families don't really like fish, so we will talk about ways opening a can of tuna, perhaps every now and then, or steam some fish and mix it with mashed potato. So many families do like a vegetarian Monday night. And I say, well, if you don't like fish and you do your vegetarian Monday night, let 
Monday nights be your fish night for your baby. So I really try and, and get them to understand that it's really not about writing it down on the calendar that Monday is Pina Day and Thursday is Brazil Day. It's really just about relaxing and fitting this allergen introduction in with the rest of the family's lifestyle. And I love your message about using food as a way to introduce these potentially allergenic proteins to babies because so often parents think, oh, I need to go buy some complicated medicalized food product and sprinkle it into my baby's bottle. And at six months of age, when showing the other signs of readiness to feed, babies can eat food versions of this. I actually have a podcast episode on each of the allergenic foods with ideas on how you guys can safely offer those foods to your baby so that you're doing what Karina recommends, which is incorporating the foods as part of your family meals that your baby's being exposed to early and often. But also for like the type A bean counter moms out there, I'm going to get that table and link to it on the show notes for you guys so you can see that publication she's talking about. Yes, because it's interesting, you know, and this is where shared decision-making, I mean, they love the word shared decision-making in the allergy world, because I have those moms that will not leave my office without that table. I have moms who absolutely prefer to use these early introduction powders, whereas, you know, other moms will never use it. So I think it is really looking at what works for the family. But I'd say the majority of families like the message of just let it fit in with what the family is doing rather than trying to make a science out of it. Besides baby led weaning, what other type of podcasts do you like to listen to? Well, if you're into true crime and you also dig traveling, I want to tell you about a new podcast you are going to love. The new podcast is called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that all take place on vacation. So the show is hosted by a true crime fanatic and her comedy writer husband, and he has a TV producing partner. So Slaycation brings a totally unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, what the heck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong from the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, their two recently engaged lovebirds, whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended up underwater. Every episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that will intrigue you. I think you're going to love the discussion between the longtime married couple and the business partners. They also happen to be an Emmy-nominated TV producer's Every episode of Slaycation also includes humor and takeaway and travel tips that are going to keep your next family vacation from becoming your last. So if you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And Karina, I was wondering if we could switch gears and talk for a second about skin and food allergy risk. I know like a lot of parents, and sometimes surprised to hear how much research and how much interest there is in understanding the skin barrier and how that might pertain to food allergy risk. If you have any insight on that or what's going on in the research, could you let us know? Yes. So the way that I would explain it to the families I work with is that I always say when it comes to food allergens, the skin barrier, especially in children with eczema, is not a very friendly immunological environment. So any allergens that first come into contact with the baby's immune system via the skin is much more likely to cause allergies. We have a much friendly immune system in our gut because, and that's really where the allergen should be going first. So when we have babies with eczema, I don't want to call it the race against time, but to some extent it is because we're trying to get the allergens into the gut 
via the oral route. So we're trying to feed them food allergens before the allergens actually penetrate via the skin and then cause um, an allergic immune reaction. And so this is really why we consider babies with eczema as the babies at highest risk of allergy. You know, very often in allergy, we think one plus one is two and, and then it doesn't work out that way. So we thought that if we can actually treat the baby's eczema, and so we put lots and lots of emollient on the skin, and we therefore improve the skin barrier, that when they do come in contact with environmental food allergens, it won't cause allergies. And so, so far, these studies have been very disappointing. But again, I'm I'm very pleased and excited to be on the advisory board of a, a study in the United States that's going to start early next year where we will look at early topical treatment of eczema in terms of prevention of food allergies. And I know we're trying to stick the point, but I have to just make one point. As much as we think that the food allergens that's available in the air or aerolyzed can cause sensitization and food allergies via the skin of babies with eczema, it is not the same for people with current food allergies. So we don't just think breathing a bit of milk or in the air or a bit of egg in the air is going to cause allergic reactions in those with milk and egg allergies. It can happen. Vast minority of cases, it's really not a big concern. So it seems that there's a difference between the level of allergen exposure that can cause sensitization and subsequent food allergies and the level of aeroallergen exposure we need to actually cause symptoms in people with existing allergies. I just wanted to highlight that as well, because often then people with current food allergies get very concerned when we talk about, you know, allergen exposure in the air, perhaps leading to food allergies in kids with eczema. And I appreciate that you qualified that because I know just the other day I was talking to a mom and she's like, it stresses me out when I hear anyone talking about the skin barrier and food allergies. My baby has a cashew allergy. My baby had severe eczema. I'm feeling like I caused this because I didn't control the eczema. I did everything I possibly could and said, no, no, no. The, the intent of even talking about the link is not to make you feel bad about it. It is just to highlight that it is an area that's currently under study. And like you said, a lot of times you think one plus one equals two. And in the allergy world, it doesn't. If I could ask you to clarify with regards to eczema, though, because as soon as health professional says eczema and talks anything about food allergy, parents automatically assume, well, my baby has eczema. That immediately puts my baby like for peanut, for example, in the high risk for peanut allergy category because there's eczema. Could you explain the difference between your run-of-the-mill eczema that the good majority of babies have and then the severe eczema that we now know is one of the criteria for high risk in addition to egg allergy for a child being at high risk for peanut allergy? You know, I wish I could give you an answer on that, but I think the short answer to that is, I don't know. And I think the shorter answer is that nobody knows. But then why is it in the guidelines? It's like... <laughs> yeah, the exact definition of, of severe eczema seemed to slightly differ between physicians, dermatologists, and allergists. And we have recently published the American Academy of Allergy um, Asthma and Immunology Guidelines on Allergy Prevention. It's also um, supported by the American College and also by the Canadian Allergy Society, perhaps another link you, you want to make. And we clearly state in this prevention guideline, it was literally published about a week ago, that there is still confusion on exactly what severe eczema means. And some people define it in terms of duration of eczema. Some um, define it in terms of you know using a score at score. Some look at how much itching there is, how much flaring of the eczema there is, 
So um, it's very hard to say this is standard eczema and this is severe eczema. Um, and so I'm sorry I'm not answering your question clearly, but I just don't think there is a very clear answer. And I think that's so hard for parents. I mean, you talk about guidelines and then parents want to know, okay, is my, because if your baby is in the high risk category for peanuts, then it does change the age at which you would potentially introduce that. And so I think it is an important area of research. I'm so glad you're involved at the highest levels, but we need to clarify this for parents. If we're going to give the guidelines, if you say severe eczema is high risk for peanut allergy, we have to have criteria to determine and tell parents whether or not their baby should be fed peanuts at four months or six months, because four month old babies cannot safely eat peanut butter no matter how you, you cut it. Six months is significantly different. And I think that's an important area for development in, yeah. for parents is to have this area clarified. I think, you know, they obviously there are people working on that. When we wrote the NIAD guidelines, we had a special subgroup that really looked at how we can best define it. So it's not that we're not trying to, to best define it. It's just that it is a complex issue. But the other thing that I want to say that may surprise you is that I wonder how relevant it really is because most of the guidelines are now, um, the European allergy guidelines are coming out later on this year. I'm one of the co-authors on that. And then, of course, American Academy guidelines, which I was a co-author on. And they're almost veering towards the direction of saying, perhaps we don't know what the high risk look like. Because we know that 25% of kids with peanut allergy never had eczema. And so perhaps when we do give this early introduction of food allergen advice, we should just do or give the same advice to all infants. Because I don't think it's just about the definition of eczema severity. It's about the whole definition of what makes you high risk. If your mom has food allergies, my data shows that the highest indicator or the best indicator for a high-risk infant to develop food allergy is a mother with a personal history of food allergy more so than eczema even though my data also showed that eczema is an indicator of a high year risk. But, but I think, you know, more and more the guidelines are moving towards the point of saying, let's just do early introduction for all and don't be too concerned about defining the high-risk infant. I agree, but at the application level, the safety concerns about introducing something besides breast milk or formula prior to six months of age, it really does become like a logistical thing. Okay, how early is early? And then how do we actually do this? I think parents are increasingly interested in all of the research that you're working on, because when you're there in the trenches, like, do I feed my baby peanuts at five months or do I wait till six months? Does it really matter? I mean, these are important issues that I know parents are weighing. So I just want to thank you so much for sharing your time and all of your expertise with our audience, because these topics about allergies and introducing new foods, they can be scary, but I just can't tell you how much we appreciate you breaking the research down, making it more manageable. Where can our audience go to learn more? about your work, Karina, and basically follow you around the internet and all these different <laughs> committees and guidelines that you're publishing and producing, where can we learn more? I have a website or a blog, which I'm trying to keep up to date, Karina Venter Online. I actually have two blogs just on early introduction of all the allergens, not just peanut. I also have a question and answer session about getting peanuts into babies that's just not interested to eat the peanut. I'm also um, on Twitter at Venter Karina, because there's another Karina Venter on Twitter. So I had to change my last name and first name around. But, you know, people can become members of Indana. It's the International Network of Diet and Nutrition in Allergy. And there's a group of us just focusing on allergy and allergy prevention. 
I hope you wouldn't mind me mentioning this, but I am running a course for dietitians via FAIR, which is Food Allergy Research and Education with Marion Gruch. We also have CPEs via A&D, and we're publishing a book with Ant towards the beginning of 2022 on allergy prevention, allergy diagnosis and management. So dietitians that's really interested to learn more about food allergy can actually look up the course. It's a 10-month course where we really try and teach dietitians everything about food allergy. And for that dietitian course, you guys, that's unfair. So at foodallergy.org, if you are a dietitian, it's, I believe it's 32 CEUs. Is that correct, Karina? Yes, yes. And then at the time of this recording, you're currently in the middle of one of the sessions. Do you know when it will next be available? Because I know a lot of dietitians working in pediatrics are interested yeah. in that, but it doesn't appear to be posted on the FAIR website. Oh, it starts at the end of every summer. Okay. So we normally have our first course first week in September, and then it runs 10 months. And is that for pediatric food allergy introduction and prevention, or is it throughout the lifespan? No, it's just pediatrics. We will do adults later on, but uh, we thought we'll start with pediatrics. We actually thought we'd run the course for only 10 dietitians this year, but we ended up with two courses and 20 per class. So there's a huge need for just pediatric nutrition. So I think we'd probably do two years of pediatric nutrition and then venture into the adult food allergies as well, which is a total different ballgame. <laughs> I know you have a lot of work. I can't believe the amount of work you already do, the things that you have coming, forthcoming, all the, the research and all the different areas that you're on. It's just, I think it's fabulous as a PhD RD that you're like, they're making these decisions because parents listen to what you guys are saying and they're working hard to implement it. My suggestion, just to add to your list of things that, you know, your to-do list is if you could find the equivalent of the NIAID guidelines for the pediatricians that are currently being told, wait three to five days. And if we could interject that into medical, you know, graduate medical school education. So they stop saying that whatever that committee is, I hope you're in charge of it. And I hope that we can get this message through to parents that it is perfectly safe to feed one new food a day to your babies in order to get that important diet diversity. Thank you. I hope so too. I'm also doing some microbiome work and diet diversity. So I'm really hoping we can get all the data together and change the guidance. Do you ever sleep is my other question. <laughs> little. I sleep little. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it, Karina. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, I don't know if there is another person on the planet who knows more about the research surrounding the sequence, the order, the amount of all the different allergenic foods and different non-allergenic foods that babies can have than Karina Ventner. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I got all of the links for the different articles that she was talking about. If you're interested in learning more about this research, go to blwpodcast.com forward slash 84. She mentioned that she's not on Instagram. She said she's on Instagram, but she just follows Peloton instructors, which I love that she does that. Um, but she's on Twitter and she's like, I don't mean to disparage a lot of people in the allergy world, but their Twitter feeds are not always that interesting. Karina's Twitter feed is super, super awesome if you're interested in introducing new foods to your baby. So check it out, linking it all up again, blwpodcast.com forward slash 84. Thanks for being here for this episode with Karina Ventner, all about why we don't have to wait three to five days between introducing new foods for our babies. Bye now. <laughs> <laughs> 